Hi everyone and welcome to the Curve Mindset Podcast. Today we are joined by Damien Hughes. Damien is a really inspirational person who believes in having the growth and determination to succeed. We chatted about his steps to having a successful mindset and what it takes to be at the top. Again, any questions, give us a tweet or email us. Thanks. Hi everyone and welcome to the Curve Mindset Podcast. Today we're joined by Damien Hughes. How are you Damien? I'm good thanks Larry, how are you? I'm very well thank you. Uh, could you just tell the listeners of you a background about yourself? Yeah so um, my name's Damien Hughes. Um, I do a few different jobs. Um, I'm, I'm a professor of organisational psychology uh, and change at uh, Manchester Met University. Um, I also run a consultancy right across a whole range of different sectors uh, in education, in um, organize, in sort of business, and uh, but mainly in elite sport. So I'm currently uh, working with the uh, Scotland National Rugby Union team and Canberra Raiders in the NRL at the moment. And then the third job I do is uh, I write, so I'm an author. I've done a number of books very much around those topics. Um, and that tends to take up an awful lot of time as well. Yeah, as you said, you kind of do a lot of kind of different hats. You, you kind of work with different people. Um, yeah. You motivate a lot of people uh, with the kind of books and the kind of work you do. But what me, what motivates you? What gets you up? What gets you kind of going? Yeah. Well, thank you first of all. That's a really kind comment. Um, in terms of motivation, is one of those words that a lot of people use it, and they often feel it's misunderstood. Motivation just means why do you move? The etymology of the word is why do we move from A to B? So to answer that question, we have to talk about what choices we make and that is at the heart of what motivation is about. And in essence, there are only three reasons, three choices that we do anything. We do things because we need to do it. We do things because we know that we should do it and we do things because we really want to do it. Now our language will often betray us um, in terms of understanding what our motivations are. So when you ever hear people say, oh, I've got to do it, I've been told to do it, you know that they're drawing on the motivation of, um, of acting out of it through a sense of desperation. Those people that say, oh, I should do it really, I know that that's the best thing to do it, they're acting out of a sense of rationalisation. But the most powerful form of motivation, and I think this is what people often get it confused with, is where we talk about, I really want to do it. And when we talk like that, what we mean there is we act from a sense of inspiration. So to go back and answer your original question, we draw on all three, and I do it as well as anything else. Sometimes you do it because I feel I should. Sometimes I do it because um, I really want to. Um, But the main thing that drives me is I love making a difference to people. I love making a positive difference, feeling that um, whether it's through the books, whether it's through doing the coaching work, whether it's through uh, doing the speeches that I'll often do, the idea that you help people 
think about things in a different way, in a positive way, is what really drives me and, and makes me really excited about the work I do. Yeah, yeah, I can feel it in your your voice that you just want to help that person one percent, and therefore they're going to create that you know that need sometimes because you said there's that way there's three different ways to motivate yourself. You know what I mean? But from your kind of past experience, you know you've had a lot of influence on people, and you've kind of you say you want to try and motivate and get people better. But who who was your role model? Who was the one who kind of inspired you to kind of get all this yeah um, the short answer is uh, I'm incredibly lucky in terms of uh, my own background so it's my dad um, I grew up in a boxing club uh, my dad was a boxing coach uh, he ran a boxing coach in, in, in the city of Manchester now it was classed as one of Europe's third poorest districts uh, where we grew up so I mentioned that to give you an idea of the kind of social issues that uh, a lot of people faced around there incredibly poor part of town and what my dad was driven by was the idea of giving especially the young people a place they could come to and then the idea of teaching them boxing was to give them a discipline and the idea of being able to do something positive with their own lives so I grew up very much in that environment and then um, I saw my dad take a number of uh, guys from uh, from the streets from the local estate right the way through to become elite professional world champions so I got a real insight in terms of around the world of coaching and about elite sport at the same time so that was a um, I feel incredibly privileged to have got that to recognize the discipline the sacrifice the hard work that goes into achieving goals like that but then what I also realized was as well as being a technically very good coach he was also psychologically in a different league and that was a real interest of mine so that's what I pursued at night school and then on into university and further education I was very much looking around the psychology of high performance and getting some of the science behind it so I could go back and help my dad underpin the practice that he was doing and subsequently go on and work with other coaches and leaders to do uh, similar sort of effects. Yeah, as you said, your, your dad was your kind of your the main influence in helping you out. Could you even see when you kind of coached, do you get that like that still that kind of goosebumps or the information from your dad? You know, if he was still you know try like the small things because I know every generation is a new thing people will learn from and then they try to make it better. Is that something? It doesn't have to be your dad. It could be someone you've you know helped influence or you've influenced. And I think that's oh key. yeah, yeah. I think the goosebump effect, uh, Laurie, is, is 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 huge. And I think I think anybody that goes into the kind of um, sport, the kind of industry that you do and that your listeners do, that's what you're in it for. That moment where you see that real connection with somebody, where you help them go a little bit further than what maybe they imagined that they could do themselves, and whether that's and. and you're right to pinpoint that it's often the really small things that help that uh, that make the difference. I often feel that we badly serve that in our society. People often assume coaching is about making like Winston Churchill like speeches and rousing people and inspiring them. And the reality, as you know, and uh, I'm sure your listeners do, it's all about just those small moments of connection, just giving people a little bit of an insight or a little bit of a correction 
and then go and see them blossom. That's the stuff that that really excites me. And you're right. I saw it like as a as a uh, so as a kid, I would go and sort of work in the corners of uh, the boxing with my dad. So I'd often carry the spit bucket, and I would see that you've only got a minute in between rounds in which you can communicate your information. So there's no time for big rhetorical speeches. It's about just one simple bit of advice or knowledge that that really makes the difference. I mean, I remember years ago, um, there's an old um, football coach, a guy called Jimmy Murphy. He was some at Busby's assistant at Manchester United. And when he'd retired from... Um, from coaching, he used to come into the boxing club because he used to just love watching the fighters train. I remember as a young boy, my dad said, go and speak to Jimmy about coaching. And I remember chatting with him. And it was just like opening up a treasure chest of, of, of knowledge. And the best example that he used was he took an old tennis ball and he threw it to me and he said, catch that. And when I caught it, he said, how did you find it? I said, yeah, it's easy enough. So he said, give it me back. Then he threw two. And when he threw two, he said, catch them both. And when I did it, he said, how do you find that? I said, yeah, it was all right. I had to think a bit harder. He said, and then he threw three, and then he threw four. And by the time he threw five tennis balls, the reality was I was struggling to catch one of them. And Jimmy Murphy made a really powerful point that night to me. He said to me, he said, that is the difference between a good and a great coach. What good coaches do is they turn up with a head full of knowledge and information, and they throw all five tennis balls in the hope that you might catch one of them. And he said, what great coaches do is they work out it's not how many balls I can throw, it's how many balls you can catch that's the most important thing here. And for most of us, we can take one bit of information on. We can catch one tennis ball really easily. And that lesson, I think, is a really powerful one that resonates for all coaches. It's the ability to communicate in really simple terms that really make the difference to and give you those goosebump moments that we were describing. Yeah, and that's... Uh, kind of part of the coaching is being adaptable you know what I mean and trying to learn you know how to deal with different you know scenarios and setbacks and yeah. as you said uh, that was a great uh, story that it kind of makes you think more you know kind of focusing three or four things to make that person better because therefore I can actually get better myself by learning more but again giving that small pieces of information will increase them by even like 5%, but then that 5% is going to make it such a difference. Um, moving on, you've, you've, had a, you've got a book out called The Five Steps to, the, to a Winning Mindset. Uh, can yep. you tell us what they are and how they relate to it when it comes to kind of sport? Yeah, so, well, if I tell you more about why I wrote it, first of all, yeah. so the idea behind the book was that um, I've been incredibly fortunate to spend... Um, a large part of my career working with the lead coaches, looking at how do they engage, how do they get people to remember their messages, how do they work with players to get them to perform under pressure, how do you take a diverse group of people and create a cohesive unit, all, all challenges that, that these coaches face. So what I wanted to do was um, almost try and distill down what do all of these coaches do to achieve that? So not the technical side of it, but how do they engage and things like that? So I spent three years, as well as my own experiences, going around the world interviewing uh, some of the world's best coaches and watching them deliver sessions and um, talking to them about how they did it. And what I found was there was five things they all did, and that's what the acronym, the STEPS, is. So I'll take you through each of the... Um, each of the uh, letters in turn. So the first bit, 
the, the first S is about simplicity. What you found with great coaches is they've got the ability to keep things incredibly simple. So like that Jimmy Murphy story I just told you about there, um, the, uh, 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 with the tennis balls, it's that ability to communicate your message in just really simple terms. So probably the best, uh, the best exponent of it is somebody like Alex Ferguson. Like when you speak to any players that were fortunate enough to be in the dressing room with him during his career, they will say his, possibly his greatest strength was his ability to give uh, to communicate his team talk in really simple language. So there's a famous example where Roy Keane talks about Ferguson delivered a team talk in just three words. So when they were playing Tottenham Hotspur once at home, Keane said, we all knew what Tottenham were like. He said they were a nice football team. They would play nice, intricate passing. But physically, we would be able to bully them off the ball and we would dominate them. And he said, we all knew that. And Ferguson walks into the dressing room. He said he stopped, he looked around and he said to them, lads, it's Tottenham. And then he walked out. And Keane said, that... Those three words were perfect in terms of articulating. He said, we knew what Tottenham were like. So the ability to communicate really simply is key. The T part of the acronym is to get people to think. So what I found with a lot of coaches is they would spend an awful lot of time trying to create opportunities for their players to ask questions. Because what they were saying is, if, if it, so if a player feels that he can trust you and he feels safe enough to say to you I don't understand that or can you help me with this that was where the real coaching work started because it's a bit like that, those small moments you described for the goosebump effect earlier those small moments are where you really can make a difference so a lot of coaches would spend time trying to create an environment where the players could ask questions and they could ask questions of them so Mourinho is a great example of this. He talks about, he uses a coaching technique called guided discovery that I, taught, that I explain in more detail in the book, where he starts a coaching session by posing a question to his players. And then the session is designed to help them come up with a range of answers. The E part of the equation is emotional intelligence. And this is the bit that I've yet to meet any elite coach that doesn't possess high levels of emotional intelligence. And the best example that I saw for this was when um, I went out to Detroit a number of years ago to interview uh, a boxing coach called Emmanuel Stewart. He was the head of the Cronk Boxing Gym that produced uh, like world-class champions like Tommy Hearns. And when I got there to meet him, I, it was quite an intimidating environment. And uh, Mr. Stewart sort of met me at the door and he said, how do you feel coming here today, Damien? And I sort of gave him a polite answer. I said, oh, I'm really excited to be here, Manny. And he followed it up. He said, that's really nice. Now tell me the truth. And when he asked me that question, I said to him, well, to be honest, I feel a little bit intimidated. I'm a bit out of my depth. I'm, I'm conscious. I don't want to waste your time because I know how busy you are. And Manny Stewart said, thanks for being honest. He said, now me and you can do some great work together. And when I got to know him a little bit over the preceding months, I went back to that first occasion and I asked him, I said, what did you do that day? Because that was an unusual approach. And Manny Stewart described emotional intelligence better than any academic I've been lucky enough to work with since, where he described it in three words. He said, what I was doing was containing, then explaining. And what he meant by that was, he said, if you come into my environment and you feel intimidated or scared or a little bit out of your depth or you feel nervous, he said, I can't explain what I need you to do. 
because your brain doesn't allow me access to the parts where I need to talk to you and explain it. So he said, so I invest a lot of time convincing you that I care for you, that I'm interested in you, that I'm invested in your success. In other words, containing. And when I've achieved that, then I can explain what I need to do. Now, the P bit of the equation is practicality. And this is probably the easiest one to understand. Great coaches just don't use jargon. They don't talk in terms of jargonistic terms. And the reason they don't is because when we use jargon or when we use very technically uh, very technical terms, what about people that don't understand? And if we don't understand and feel stupid, we switch off. So the safest ground to operate in is to use really practical, easily accessible language rather than use overly technical terms to make sure that everybody buys into it. And then the final S, Laurie, is um, storytelling. Every great coach I've met just tells great stories. And the reason they tell great stories is because when you tell a story, there's an effect in psychology called the Kolmogorov complexity. Now, don't worry about the name. It's after a Russian psychologist. It's the effect. And what the Kolmogorov complexity says is, when we get told a story, we can remember more information about it. So if you want to coach somebody, and you can give them an example of, say, um, I work with Cristiano Ronaldo, for example, and this is what he did. Or you can tell them an example of a great rugby player and how they would train. For an athlete, they will remember the example a lot better. And therefore, you can get your point across more uh, in a more powerful way. So they were the five things that I saw these great coaches do in, their, in a whole range of different fields. So what I wanted to do with the book was to... Was to capture these and then explain how anybody reading it can use them themselves, whether it's use them at home with their family, whether it's use them in their sports teams, whether it's use them in business. It's to show you how those five steps can automatically help you start to achieve more positive results. Yeah, definitely. And I put some notes down already because I'm already thinking of how to, you know, create that more of that kind of winning mindset. But um, you... I believe they're all transferable in some way, but what do you think the kind of best one is to learn from, or do you think they all have positive uh, um, influences? Um, I think they all have positive influences, uh, without doubt. Um, and it will depend very much on the context. So, so I'd hesitate to say that, that one is more powerful than, uh, than, uh, than the other, because obviously that will depend on context. What I would say is the one that almost you can't get started unless you do demonstrate it is the EBIT, the emotional intelligence. So what what Manny Stewart made the point was, was he was saying, if he had a young boy turn up in his crunk gym and he felt nervous or intimidated or frightened or scared, he said, I could be the best coach in the world. But if you feel all those emotions and they're going unchecked in your head, I can't get room to communicate and tell you all the brilliant messages I want to do. So I think the emotional intelligence of of containing and then explaining just gets you in the door as a coach. I think once people have that, have that sense that they can trust you, they feel safe with you, they feel that you're on the same team as them, that's where I think you can use the other techniques to really start to make a difference. Yeah, definitely. And as you say, it's all about the, the context because you see a lot of... Um 
kind of the football world there's a lot of things on Twitter you know like sessions and all that but again if it's not the right context then people are not going to learn from that but again that's the kind of as you say the emotional side of it but also the, the practicality side people need to be practical when it comes to you know you look at some people doing like Jose Mourinho's kind of things from, you know, on Twitter, but it's never going to be, you know, working at the same level. But uh, no, and I see this with a lot of you, like youth coaches, where I, I like you see some of these uh, guys on the touchline barking out instructions and giving out sort of these quite intricate commands. And the reality is, for young for young boys that are and girls that are playing, they want to enjoy it first and foremost. They want to have a sense of enjoyment and then they want to feel safe enough that they can make mistakes without being lambasted or feeling ridiculous or silly. And if if these coaches if coaches are giving too complex instructions and almost trying to micromanage it, players become naturally intimidated about expressing themselves. And when they don't feel they can express themselves, the enjoyment goes. And when the enjoyment goes, they just stop turning up. And that's where we get such high attrition rates. Yeah, and talking about you know expressing yourself, you are um, part of the, the Scotland national rugby team, who would be England. How did you feel about that? And also, what was kind of your role for that kind of when they were during the Six Nations? Sure. So um, I've been incredibly fortunate um, to to be part of of the of the staff and support team um, since last May. So uh, I I I came in when Gregor. Townsend uh, was kind enough to invite me in um, and what my official title there is is I'm a coaching consultant so the idea behind it is that I, because often when you get the players into camp the time can be quite short and limited uh, in terms of um, the amount of time the coaches get with them so my real interest is working with the coaches um, to, to, um, to support them and give them the right tools and resources that they can go and get their messages understood, that they can create that safe environment for the players um, and get their game plans uh, down. Now, the reality is the coaches that are there, not just Gregor, but he's got a number of coaches, Dan McFarlane, Mark Taylor, Mike Blair, and the support staff are just incredibly talented guys uh, that are incredibly well-read and just very, very smart. So, that makes the support that I have to do just a real pleasure because these guys are on it and often my job is just there to reinforce the brilliant practices that they do. And I think that England game that you referenced there, Laurie, is a good example where where um, what the coaches are very good at doing is getting the players to concentrate on themselves. Don't worry about the opposition. Concentrate on your own strengths and do what you're good at. And that England game is a really good example where the players were focused on doing what they could do and you saw the results that, they, uh, that those players went out there to uh, to achieve. Yeah, definitely. And it was a great night. You know, it was uh, from a Scotland point of view, it was brilliant. Um, we spoke to Dan Abrahams um, comments, uh, last month and he was saying oh, you know, it was just like we didn't even know what to do because it was just one of them having a laugh with him, you know, off air. But again, it's yeah. just one of them, as I said, there's well, so Dan's much... Dan's a brilliant guy, I know Dan, and I know just uh, how talented and charismatic and fantastic he is, so uh, 
So, you know, I, I, I can imagine that his insights would be worth their weight in gold. Oh, no, it was just, a, it was just one of them Scotland versus England things, and it was just a good laugh afterwards. <laughs> but um, your, your tour handle is a kind of liquid thinker. Can you tell us what that kind of is? Because um, a lot of the listeners and a lot of, kind of, a lot of my friends and the kind of mindset and football world are trying to figure out what it is still, and we're trying, you know... Well, it's liquid thinking. Yeah, so the idea behind it was uh, a number of years ago. Uh, um, what always struck me was um, it was a quote from the uh, cre- um, creativity, uh, I'll use the word guru, uh, Edward de Bono. And de Bono made a really interesting observation that he said 80% of the troubles that we have in life come from what he described as solid thinking. And what we mean by solid thinking is it's a bit like the growth mindset stuff now, it's like that fixed mindset that inability to see the world from any other angle than your own. So, solid thinking are the guys that, you know the sort of blokes that go abroad um, on holiday and shout at foreigners in their own language? So you keep asking the same thing and you just get louder and louder. You don't become more coherent. You just become louder and more obnoxious. That's solid thinking. And that's the the sort of thinking of, you know, making people run harder rather than think about how do you train them smarter this is about the um like i see it in business where people say oh we need more money rather than how do we do what we've done and do it a bit smarter they're all examples of solid thinking you're unable to see the world from any other angle than your own so what's the opposite of that well it's liquid thinking it's the ability to be fluid to not get too fixed on one or two ideas, but to be able to see the world from different angles. Now, in coaching, this is where I often think this is the most powerful thing. It's not to come in and impose your view of the world. It's to go in and step into the shoes of the person you're coaching and see the world through their eyes. And when you see it through their eyes and understand it through their perspective, then you can almost help them understand how to change or how to do things better. So that's very much the genesis behind it. It's the idea of just having that fluidity and flexibility of thinking. Yeah, and that's the kind of key aspects of this podcast and life too because, you know, you've got business people, you've got football people, you've got sports people who are always trying to come up with new ideas. But again, trying to be uncomfortable, being comfortable, you know, I think that's key in, uh, you know, in today's society because you're judged within the first like 10 seconds you know of what you can do but if you yeah. actually, if you if you, have, you always think can I can I do something that potentially might be uncomfortable for me I'm going to learn more about that um, you well I'll give you a really good example uh, I, I remember a few years ago uh, I got called to work with a young athlete that was going through um, it was a bit of a personal issue now this guy was a uh, he was a household name now for confidence's sake, I, 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 I don't want to reveal too much about it, but some of the issues that he was facing could potentially have been a moral clash. So there were certain things that this guy was doing that morally, if you came at it from your own point of view, you might have reached a judgment about this guy. But my job wasn't to come and give him some kind of moral lesson. It was simply to step into his world and listen to, why are you doing this? Because he knew that it was damaging, that his actions were potentially quite damaging and destructive for him. And once I stepped into his view of the world and got him to explain what it was that was going on, I actually came away from it 
starting to feel with real sympathy and understanding for this for this athlete in terms of why he was doing what he was doing. You know, he felt that he was um, he was going through an injury crisis at the time, and therefore his self worth uh, because he wasn't able to go and do the job he was paid to do was damaged. He felt incredibly isolated that he didn't feel he had a great support network of friends. He felt that uh, some of the stuff that he was engaging in was almost being too easy for him to indulge in. There was lots of reasons behind it, and I'm conscious I'm being very vague. But my point was that just by being able to step into his view of the world and see it from his angle, rather than come at it with a moralistic or judgmental point of view, meant that I was able to help him more effectively than just coming in and telling him not to do that. Because that was common sense. He knew not to do that anyway. Yeah. And as you say, you've kind of experienced a lot um, with the different events and different uh, people you spoke to. Um, Is there any events that... uh, that are coming up that people could potentially see you speak or kind of other things that are happening? Yeah, well, I'd, I'd love your listeners to, to get in touch and I'll send... Um, I, I, I do a lot of events both around the UK and abroad, so if any of your listeners want to get in touch at the, at the Twitter handle, I'll send them information. But I've got a book coming out um, this summer, which is called The Barcelona Way. And the idea behind the book is it, it's very much around explaining how to create a high-performing culture. So a lot of people talk around this idea of culture, but then if you were to say, well, what does a culture mean? And you ask 10 people, you'd often get around 10 different answers to that question. So the idea behind it was that I went and looked, I spent 18 months back and forth from Barcelona, because Barcelona took the view 10 years ago that culture could be a competitive advantage for them. So they set out to define what a culture was and then go and create a high-performing one. So some of the stuff that we see today is still a, um, an echo of the work that was done 10 years ago. And what the book looks at is how they did it and, again, how anybody can replicate a similar structure within their own, whether it's their own business, their own sports team, their own industry. So I'll be doing a number of uh, public events uh, in the summer and at the early autumn to explain a lot more about this. So I would love your listeners to feel free that they can come along and uh, and sort of ask questions and join in with it. Yeah, definitely. And when we put this out, we'll um, even a couple of weeks before the event, uh, your podcast will start to put things because there are a couple of people who are doing different events through the summer. So it'd be great to get so many different people to learn brilliant. new ideas, which is brilliant. Uh, but as you said you've got a new book coming out which is I'll be you know going for because I'm obviously totally obsessed with football in every way but uh, the other sure. kind of books uh, where can people find your other work uh, like your website or social media yeah well that's kind for asking thank you um, so the easiest place or the central place for the books and the work is the website liquidthinker.com so there's all the information there. So I've done eight books today, very much around these topics. So there's more information about those books there, and then there's links to Amazon to buy them. But um, I post a lot of sort of articles or information on there. And uh, like I say, if people want to get in touch with me, um, I can really appreciate the difference you're making with the podcast, Laurie, but equally, the difference that the people that listen to it, whether it's through coaching or the workshops or the interventions they do, and they share that passion. So if I can 
make that positive difference a bit like the first question we asked um, and do that through just picking up questions people are more than welcome to get in touch and I'd love to help them yeah and your Twitter handle is Liquid Thinker is that correct? that's right yeah it's the same as the website it's just Liquid Thinker perfect but thanks again Damien we really my pleasure thanks for having me on Thanks for listening. Any feedback, tweet us at The Curve Mindset or email us at thecurvemindset at gmail.com. Thanks.